Well, church, it is good to be back again with you guys uh, this morning. If it's the first time or first time in a long time, we started a, a new series about six, seven weeks ago called uh, uh, On the Life of Jesus Christ from Eternity Past All the Way to Eternity Still Future. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be talking about what it means to be salt and light and what it looks like for us to be able to engage people and engage our community well. And so if you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do that, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with us, uh, you can, we're going to be, I'll be putting some of these passages up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along there too. Um, I told you a little while ago, one of my first jobs coming out of Texas A&M uh, was, uh, was car sales. It's not really the path that uh, that a lot of ministers go on in order to get into ministry and things like that, but it was the path I wanted to do. Uh, kind of knew I wanted to get into ministry late in high school, and so kind of knew that, so I decided to go to Texas A&M because that's where God resides, and um, <laughs> I thought that that would be an appropriate place to get, do my undergrad and stuff like that, right? And so we uh, graduated from A&M and kind of finished up school and figured out, okay, we're kind of discerning some things going, you know what, I don't think that, I don't think the seminary is the next step right now. I think I need to take some time to, to work in the real world where real people live and uh, not this insulated thing called seminary and church and all these other kinds of things. And so I got into sales and um, over at Sewell GMC and I absolutely loved my time there. Uh, you know, sales, car sales isn't so much really about the cars as it is about people. And for me, I love people. People are diverse. People think differently. There's a spectrum of humanity that I find uh, absolutely beautiful. And I really love that element of the job. Uh, I'll never forget one day I got a phone call from a guy. I was sitting in my office and he calls me up and he's like, hey, Aaron. So he's like, I need an H1, a Hummer 1. Not the H2s or the H3s, right? I mean, we're talking about the big dogs, the ones that the army uses that are like $150,000 and take up three lanes on the highway. You know what I'm talking about? So he needs one of those things. And, and uh, he's like, bring it to my office. I'm paying cash for it. And as a salesman, I'm going, yes, thank you, Jesus. You really do love me, right? And so, um, <laughs> so it's exactly what we do. We bring the guy, this H1, and uh, I call him the next morning. And I'm like, hey, how are you enjoying your car? Is everything working out well? He's like, I hated that thing. He's like, I need to take it back immediately. I want to get a Denali truck. And I was like, ooh. It's like, okay, well, problem, I, we've, it, everything's been registered. You can't take back an H1, right? You've got to sell it back to us and do an exchange. And I was like, it's not even worth close to what you paid for it yesterday. And so he's like, money's not an object. I don't care. Buy it back. Dude lost about $50,000 on that one transaction just on that one day of a test drive. And uh, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But he's like, bring me out a Denali truck. And so I bring him out a Denali truck, drive it out there. We do the same thing, paying cash and a new deal and everything, uh, drop it off. I call him the next day and I'm like, hey, bro, how are you enjoying your Denali truck? He's like, I hated that thing. I dropped it off at the, I dropped it off at the Ford dealership after you left and I bought a new F-350 dually and things like that. And so I, I came, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like in one day, because you didn't want to test drive or anything, dude lost about $75,000 in, uh, in trading in cars just because he didn't want to take a test drive and things like that. I'm sitting there going, I, that could have paid for my entire seminary education, right? Like, are you kidding me? You just threw it away and it did not matter to you. You didn't even blink an eye. But that's the job, right? On any given day, you're going to talk to somebody that's like that, who money is no object. He does whatever he wants to whenever he wants to. He just doesn't have time to pay much attention to details and things like that. Uh, on the, the, the next day, you're going to be meeting with, and ha I'm having a test drive with a guy who's probably the most cautious person I've ever met in my life. We get out on this test drive, and the dude refuses to hit the accelerator because he's afraid of hitting the accelerator because he thinks he might, hit the, he might run into a tree or something like that. Like, I'm not even kidding about this. We, we get a, he brings in a, 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 I knew we were in trouble. He brings in this uh, chihuahua <laughs> to his dealership who pees on our three, four, three times. 
and uh, which don't bring your dog with you to the dealership. But uh, anyway, we, we do this thing, and we're doing this test drive. I'm going to come out there, and he gets, gets in, the, in the driver's seat, and we get out on Lemon Avenue, and, and he would not hit the accelerator. He's, we're idling in the, middle of the, in the middle lane of Lemon Avenue, and like cars are flying past us. They're blowing their horn. They're screaming obscenities at us and things of that nature. And so, and so I, was like, I was like, bro, you, it's the one on the right. It's the pedal on your right. Just push it. I promise you, it's good for you. You're going to love it. He's like, I don't want to do that. I could wreck the car. And I'm like, you're going to have to drive this car at some point, right? And so like on any given day, you've got person whose money's no object, time doesn't matter, and things like that. Other person who's the most cautious person in the world. The next day, I'm going to be talking to the style guy. who the, His only question is about how good this car is going to make me look. Uh, the next day, I'm going to be talking to the practicality guy who's asking me all about cup holders and whether or not his favorite mug is going to fit in the car and whether or not the those vanity lights are just right so that he can like see himself while he drives and and things like that you know and then the next day i'm going to be talking to cost efficiency guy you know who this is right they, they bring in the spread like the packet of spreadsheets and comparative analysis data and stuff and it takes them like seven months to decide what color they want on their car right and and, and if they can save a few bucks and over the course anyway uh, that guy drove me nuts um and then, of course, there's like speed guy, right? They come in there, and they're, they're, the only thing that they care about is getting out on Lemon Avenue and drag racing down Lemon Avenue. Like, how fast can I get this Denali from zero to 60 and things of that nature, right? And, and, and so, like, there, there's so many different people on any given day, and I loved every single minute of it. Because what it taught me was that, was that there's a way to engage people generically, and then there's a way to engage people uniquely for who they are, really are and engage people well. Like, cost-efficient guy was not exactly the same thing as the speed guy. And speed guy is not exactly the same conversation as the power guy. And the power guy is not exactly the same uh, conversation as the, as the money guy and all these different kinds of things. Church, like, there's a way to engage people generically. And there's a way to engage people for who they really are and engage people really, really well. And I think that's exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says that you and I are the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and turn there this morning. I want to talk about what it looks like to engage our world and engage people really, really well. What it means in this whole metaphor that you and I are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So again, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick it up here in verse 13. I want to remind you, if you were here this past week, um, this is a continuation of a sermon that began a little while ago. In verse 1, he's going to be doing this famous sermon called the, on the Beatitudes, which are essentially these series of blessings in this unlikely group of people who are going to be blessed in the kingdom of God. And so it's a continuation of what we talked about last week. It's going to be things like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is doing. He goes up on the side of this mountain, and he's teaching not only only his disciples who are there in his inner circle, but he's speaking to these large crowds there, and he says unlikely things. Blessed are those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because you're a jerk, but because of me right? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in the exact same conversation and in the same sermon is what we're going to get to this, this, this morning when he says, uh, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, church, I don't want you to miss the encouragement that's here in this passage. Let me ask you again. We've been reminding you of this, this whole thing for quite a while. But, like, who is the immediate con- uh, context? Who, who is the immediate group of people that he's speaking to here in this passage? It's the patokos. It's the poor in spirit. It's what we've talked about the past number of weeks. The end of chapter 4, it says that news about Jesus began to spread throughout all of Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and those who were paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. And so large crowds from around the region began to follow him. In other words, church, like, that's the crowd who's there that day. So we're not even talking about the B-team or anything like that. We're talking about D-teamers right here. It's the sick and the possessed, the blind and the lame, the paralyzed and the poor, the meek and the mourning. And what he's saying is that those things don't actually define who you really are. Like, like, like that's what he's saying. Like, uh, like those things don't who define who you really are. You're not defined by the things that people say about you. You're not defined by the tragedies of your past. You're defined by your maker. Uh, and you are who I chose to be the salt of the earth and the light of this world. Church, don't miss the encouragement that's taking place right here. Like, He's speaking to a group of people who've forgotten who they really are. And what he's saying is that no matter what you've been told, and no matter how you may feel in any given moment, like you were created with a purpose, and you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of this world. And that's not an easy thing for, any, for everyone to believe, right? Especially if you're that person who's, who's believed the exact opposite and been told the exact opposite their entire life. I mean, anyone else here this, this morning have a hard time Believing that some of the things that Jesus has actually said about you are actually true. I mean, for instance, in John chapter 8, um, Jesus is going to say the exact same thing about himself. He's going to say, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. And we're going to be reading that passage. And we're going to be kind of going, okay, well, that makes sense. Like, I can believe that Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, he's the second member of the Trinity, right? He's in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. It's, it's Jesus. I get that Jesus is the light of the world. But when he says that exact same thing about me, that's a little harder to swallow, isn't it? Like when he says that I am the light of the world and that, and that you're the light of the world, I mean, like that's a little harder to swallow, right? I, like I know my deficiencies. I know my weaknesses. I know the amount of darkness that is inside of me. I know some of these things that are just so far from things that I are typically light, yet that's who he says that I am. And he's going to say, whoever follows me, he's going to explain it like this. He's going to say, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will also have the light of life. And then, of course, Paul's going to explain how this takes place theologically a little bit later on. 2 Corinthians 5, he's going to say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, church, like Christ's death wasn't just an example for how we should then live. Like Christ died as a substitute for us that we may get his life. There was an exchange that took place when Jesus died upon the cross. It was our death for his life. He took on our death, we took on his life. He took on our sin, he gave us his righteousness. And so if Christ says that you're absolutely beloved and that you're righteous, then you and I better believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are beloved and we are righteous. He, he died on that cross that we, would be, that we would know that we're beloved and that we are righteous. If Jesus said that you and I are, are redeemed, then you better believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And if Jesus says that you and I are salt and light, I don't care if you're the D team in this world, then that's who you really are. 
a little while ago, there was a commercial probably about eight years ago, AT&T came out with, and I, I love the commercial, but it was, a, it was kind of showing all these different ways that you can use the AT&T products. And so it was all these cool scenes of really cool, fun people, and they're doing their cell phone, and they're doing the computer, and all these different things, and all these different settings, and there's a number of different this kind of snapshots going on there. And the, it, as the commercial wrapped up, it wrapped up with this really good tagline I loved. Here's what it said. It just said, it's what you do with what we do. Here's all the different ways that you can use these things, but it's what you do with what we do. In other words, we can make this product, but it's really about what you choose to do with everything we've already done. And church, it's exactly what I'm trying to communicate right here. Like Christ has already done everything on our behalf. He's already made us in his own image and given every single man, woman, and child inherent dignity and value. He's already said that we are beloved children of God. He has already given us value and purpose and redeemed us and said that we are loved. But it's what you choose to do with everything that Christ has already done on your behalf that will determine your ability to become the salt and light he's already created you to be. And so first things first, what we're seeing here is like we've got to remember who we really are, right? Like we're not defined by the B team or the C team or the A team or even the D team or any of these different labels. We're not defined by the things that people say about us or the the tragedies in our past or the successes of our future. We're defined by our maker who says that you are who I chose to be the salt of the earth and the light in this world. And so I want to dive into this metaphor a little bit more. Again, here's what he's saying. You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, here's what he says. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He's not speaking of salvation here. He's speaking about your effectiveness and your ability to engage people really, really well. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. Give light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, when we're talking about light, this is an easier one to understand, right? Like we get what light does. Light is that thing that comes on and it dispels the darkness and illuminates the things that are true right in front of you. Right, that's what it does. You turn on a light, it dispels the darkness in a room, and all of a sudden you're able to see what's actually there. Psalmist is going to put it like this. He's going to say, your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right, that's what it does. It lights up the things that are true right in front of you. And so when I'm putting Kayla to bed at night, uh, a lot of times I'll leave that bathroom light on. I'll leave the door slightly cracked there. It's not because he's afraid of the dark. It's because uh, I know in the middle of the night, I'm going to have to go back in there and I don't want to step on those gum Legos, right? Like I need to know where those things are. I need to know like where I'm walking and, and what's actually true on that floor in front of me and things like that. And so when Jesus says that you and I are the, are the light of the world, a great way to think about it is kind of like this, that bright people illuminate the way, right? That's what he's saying, essentially, like bright people illuminate the way. So it's not just that you and I are do-gooders that are doing good things, it's not just that you're involved in social justice just for the sake of that or anything like that. He's saying that, 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 that bright people illuminate the way. It's verse 16. Let your, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. It, so it's, you're doing these good things in such a way that glorifies the Father and illuminates the path of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a great example of how this plays out in Acts chapter 16. Um, It's about 20 years after this sermon takes place. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has already come at Pentecost. Uh, The B team has absolutely become the salt and light of this earth. I mean, revival is spreading all over the place, and so things are going crazy. Paul and his friends have received this vision to go to Macedonia in order to preach the gospel to this unreached place over there. They're spreading out. It's the first missionary movements in the world, and they're spreading out, going to Macedonia. And so they stop off at Philippi 
on the way. And that's where they engage this lady named Lydia. I love Lydia's story. Here's what it says in verse 13. On the Sabbath day, it says that we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there'd be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Okay, so here's who Lydia is. Lydia is this smart and successful and savvy business owner. The passage says she's actually from Thyatira, which means that she's probably there in Philippi on business, right? She's a seller of purple fabrics, which means uh, that she's basically this fashionista, right? She's got the blog with a million followers. Everybody wants to know what, what Lydia's wearing and everything. Uh, seller of purple fabrics is not just the Pantone color of the year back then. Uh, that was the clo- those were the clothes of royalty, Right, that's what they wore. I mean, Beyonce would shop with, uh, would shop with Lydia, and um, J-Lo would buy her stuff, and Brian Radabaugh would pay extraordinary amounts of money to buy her clothes and stuff like that. Like, that's who she was, just this massive fashionista and things like that. So that's Lydia, smart, successful, savvy business owner and things like that. On top of that, we're finding out that she's already spiritually interested. And I think this is a fascinating part of her story. She's already spiritually interested. She's already interested in the things of God. I mean, when Paul and his traveling companions, they go and find Lydia, they find her at a prayer gathering. She's probably reading the Torah already, and she's at a prayer gathering. She's described as a worshiper of God, and all they have to do is come alongside her and illuminate the way of the gospel and explain to her clearly the things of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's all that they have to do. Like, there's not even an awkward conversation that comes into it. It says that the Lord just opened her heart to respond with faith. Church, you know how many Lydias are around you every single day? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, how many Lydias are around you literally every single day? Spiritually minded, spiritually interested people that have massive confusion about what the gospel actually is. I mean, we're living here in America. We're still about 60 to 65% of our country acknowledges faith in God. Like they say they identify as Christians and about 18% of them are gonna walk into a church anytime in the past six months, meaning there's somewhere around 40% probably that, that says that they're Christians and have no idea what the gospel actually means. You know that, like, you know how many Lydia's are around you every single day that are waiting for you to come and to engage and to simply illuminate the path of the gospel, the way of the gospel a little bit more clearly so they can understand the things of Jesus Christ? I mean, I'll never forget, about a year ago, I was back there on a fourth Sunday uh, doing evangelism with our, with our church here, and I was back in this apartment complex uh, right, be- right behind us, and uh, we were knocking on doors, and we were praying with people and talking and engaging, and I met this guy one day. And, uh, and I introduce ourselves and we start talking a little bit and I ask him if there's anything we can pray for him about. And he's like, oh, I love this. This is great. He's like, I'm a Christian too. And I was like, oh, great. Okay, well, anything we can pray for you and your family about. And so he shares a few things and we start talking and I pray with him right then and there. And, and uh, I ask him, I say, hey, can I give you this wristband right here? Uh, if you've never seen these things, it's got five basic verses, what are the essentials of the gospel. I say, can I just share this with you and just show you what we're doing? Maybe you can share it with one of your neighbors or something later on. And he's like, oh, yeah. And, 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 I, and, I, and I gave him this bracelet. And I said, have you ever seen these verses before? He's like, no, I've got no idea what they mean. I was like, well, let me share some of these things. And we just go through simple things. Romans 3, 23, for all of sin fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever heard that verse before? He's like, I've heard something about that. Yeah, I think so. I was like, well, the wages of sin is death, right? That's the next one right here. Bad news at the very beginning. You know, spoiler alert right there. Uh, the wages of sin is death. Have you heard? Yeah, I've heard that. Okay. And, and, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Is this ringing a bell? He's like, I've never heard that verse before. 
And I was like, let's keep going. I was like, it's getting so much better here, right? Like, we're turning a corner, bad news to good news right here. Like, the next verse is that, that God, is that uh, you can be saved by faith. Like, it, is, it is by God's grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest no man should boast. Have you ever heard of it? He's like, I've never heard this verse before in my entire life. We keep going, and, and we keep getting into Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Is this ringing a bell? He's like, I've never heard any of this in your life. Church, Lydia's are all around you every single day. I mean, pay attention to the messaging that you see on TV. Like when you're watching a TV show, what is the, what is the stereotype of what Christianity is? It, it, it's a group of people who are following a moral code and a good religious teacher and doing it maybe a little bit better in such a way that's going to give them eternal life, right? Or they think that they are. Or they're failing miserably and they're just massive hypocrites and things like that. But that's, that is the picture that you see of what Christianity actually is. It's a group of people that are following a moral code and a good religious teacher. And, and they're holding on to this group of virtues in order to be approved by God in the end. Like that is, could not be further from the truth. And when we're illuminating the truth of the gospel right here, it is by God's grace that you are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Like that doesn't make sense to the, to the normal world. And, and I'm sharing these truths with this guy, and he's sitting there going, I've never heard this message before. And I'm saying, what's keeping you from giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? He goes, it was ignorance. That's it. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. I'd been in church, and I've done all these different kinds of things, and, and, and I went through all these different motions, and I've never understood what you just explained to me. Church, it's all over the place. We were back there doing Revive Texas a year or so ago back in uh, McKinney, and I was with Raven Atchison and a few friends and stuff from around here at this church, and we were walking in the streets, and I ran across the exact same thing. I talked with this guy, hey, is there anything we can pray for you about? And he's simply saying, he's like, oh, this is great. I go to XYZ Church down the street. This is wonderful. So we pray for the guy, and I start going through this, and I'm like, have you heard any of these verses? He's like, I've never heard these verses. Like, where is this coming from? I was like, it's actually the Bible. Right? It's, it's, it's actually in the Bible. This is, this is the basics of the faith right there. And he's simply going, like, I've never heard these truths of the gospel in my entire life. Church, Lydia's all around you every single day. Like, they, they say Christian things. They do good things. They look like you and me. And they have some sort of spiritual interest. They're willing to be engaged. They're willing to have these conversations. All they need is someone who's got enough courage to go and engage them and illuminate the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that brings glory and honor and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Gary O'Neill a few weeks back. Gary and Jim came back and gave us a report of their trip to Bangladesh. You remember this? And uh, they were talking a little bit about our, our church's past history with Bangladesh and gospel for Muslims and Abraham Sarker and this whole relationship thing. And, and I love that whole story. It's about seven years ago, Jim and Gary went out to Bangladesh with Abraham with gospel for Muslims. And they're out there doing some community outreach. And Jim is this massive boat uh, enthusiast. And so they go and rent this, essentially a canoe. And uh, they decide to take about a two-hour boat ride across the ocean and they land on this island over there that missionaries had never been to. There's about 100,000 people living on this island that's largely Muslim. And so Jim and Gary Gill over there, and they just share their testimony and share a simple presentation to about 300 villagers right over there. And about 150 of them stood up and said, I want to give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. One lady stood up and she goes, where have you been our entire lives? We've been having dreams of this Jesus, and we've been begging God for clarity about who this person is. Where have you been our entire life? You remember that? Like they're simply saying, where have you been? Why didn't you come earlier? 
And church, what I'm trying to tell you is like Lydia's all around you. There are spiritually interested people that will have the conversation with you that want to acknowledge God, they want to worship him, and they need to be illuminated to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're waiting for you and me to engage with them. One of my favorite things that Brian Radabaugh does all the time, we always, whenever we go out to lunch, um, we'll be waiting on our food. The waiter, waitress will come by and um, they'll bring our food finally to us and, and they'll, they'll kind of put everything down. And of course, they always ask that question and they say, okay, does this all look right to you? Is there anything else that I can bring you? And we're all like, no, 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 it's pretty good. And then Brian always looks up and he goes, hey, we're about to pray for our food. Is there anything that we can pray for you or your family about? I mean, that's it, church. And you know what, like nine out of 10 times, like they're gonna come, they have always come back and be like, wow, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, let me think about, yeah. Actually, my, my, my husband's just lost his job, was the most recent one. We, we, can, you pray for, can you pray for us? We don't know where he's gonna be going. And, uh, and, and every now and then they're gonna take some time and they'll actually let you pray for them right then and there. Other times they got other tables and stuff to go to, but literally that is the only question it took. We're about to pray for our food. Is there anything I could pray for you about? The church, like Lydia's are all over the place and they're simply waiting to be engaged. One of my buddies is uh, having incredible success in his, uh, in his workplace. And he's probably the most introverted person I've known, right? This is not the person who's comfortable talking to walls for hours in the world and, and hoping that they're gonna speak back to him. I mean, this is the person that, that kind of fears people and anybody else identify with this a little bit? You're kind of like, I don't like large groups and conversations and stuff. This is one of the most effective people I've known in their workplace. You know what he's doing? He's asking his coworkers and he's simply saying, hey, at lunchtime, I'm gonna be in that conference room and I'm gonna be reading about Jesus in the Gospel of John. Would you like to read it with me? Learn about who he is and help me understand him a little bit better? That's it. Hey, I'm gonna be back in that back room and I'm just, I'm, I'm reading John, I'm reading all about Jesus. Do you wanna come and read with me and learn with me about who he really is? And people are sitting there going, well, yeah, I could do that. I don't even have lunch plans. I brought my PB&J and I've got nothing else going on today. Like, I will go back there and we can do this thing together. Unbelievable success. Church Lydia's are all over the place. They are hungry for the things of God. And the, Holy Spirit, the beauty of it is that the Holy Spirit's already there long before you ever show up. And he's doing exactly what he did with Lydia. He's opening up her heart to respond in faith to the things of the gospel. Like he's doing the heavy lifting and you're just coming along and just seeing incredible spiritual fruit as you're willing to engage in these conversations and illuminate the way and bring light to the darkness and illuminate it in such a way that Jesus Christ is glorified in that person's life. It's all over the place. All she needs is someone who's willing to go and prayerfully engage. And so Paul and his friends, that's exactly what they do. They find her at a prayer gathering. She's already a worshiper of Yahweh. She just doesn't understand the beauties of the gospel. And so they come and they do what bright people do, right? They illuminate the way and they clearly point people to Jesus. Now, salt is a little bit more tricky. Uh, there's a lot of different directions you can go when trying to decide what, what salt actually means here. Um, most obviously, the way that we use it today, salt is a seasoning and it makes food taste a little bit better, right? That's, that's what we, we do with it today. It's a seasoning that makes food taste a little bit better. It's probably not what Jesus had in mind back then because they didn't do the salt shaker thing and they didn't put it on all their food. Uh, nevertheless, it is a helpful metaphor to kind of pay attention to. Salt is one of these things. You don't go to the restaurant and say, hey, I need a bucket of salt, right? That's what I want for dinner tonight. It's, 
It's, it's a garnish. It's a thing that you add to something else. It's a thing that enhances the flavor of meat or enhances the flavor of your food. It's never to be something, something that's to be eaten by itself. And in the exact same way, church, you and I are never meant to be living in isolation by ourselves. We're always supposed to be in the world, not completely of the world. And so that message preaches pretty well, but it's probably not what Jesus had in mind right here. Uh, anybody else have that friend that, um, you know, they bring the salt shaker with them everywhere they go? Anybody do that? I've got this buddy. I'm not kidding you. He brings his own salt shaker to lunch, dinner, wherever we are. He's that guy that you invited to your home, and you spent all this time cooking and laboring, and it's this incredible meal. And before they even taste it, like, he's just dousing the whole thing in salt and offending you to death. Um, anyway, like, like some people, that's what you do, and I pray for him all the time. And so he's been very helpful in my prayer life. But that's what it is. It's a seasoning. It enhances the flavor and brings out the good of something that's going on there. Probably not what Jesus had in mind. Um, it could be a fertilizer. People in back in the day, they would use salt as a fertilizer. Helps things grow. Maybe you and I as a salt of the earth were to be in the world and help other people grow. It works a little bit. Probably not what Jesus had in mind. Um, uh, probably what he had in mind is that salt is a preservative, right? That's what he's talking about right here. It's a preservative. In the pre-refrigeration days, you used salt in order to pack meat and to keep rot and decay from taking place in that which was good. Right, and so that's kind of what's taking place there. True story. Back when I was doing refugee ministry, one of the I walked into this um, apartment one of the for the first time. It was a young family in from South Sudan, and uh, they were brand new to the states and hadn't really done Dallas life or American life at all before. Didn't know what their big giant box that was really really cold in the in the kitchen. They didn't know what that was about. Refrigerator. I walk into their apartment and there's a goat laying on their countertops, packed in salt. They went to the butcher, and I had got this whole-skinned goat, and it's just covered in salt, and is laying out in the middle of their kitchen and stuff like that. And I'm going, let me introduce you to a refrigerator and a freezer here. Um, but I, that's, that's how it was used. It's a preservative. They packed it right there, and it's preserving the goodness of the meat. Um, also, in addition to that, you know that salt is a thing that makes people thirsty. It's what McDonald's has picked up on. They doused their fries with salt. Um, and then, of course, you need 96 ounces of Coke and Dr. Pepper in order to quench your thirst immediately after that, right? And so and that's, that's what it means to be the salt of the earth. All of those different things are true. It's probably most likely the preservative and things of that nature. Uh, but a great way to think about it is that salty people preserve the good by making people thirsty. Salty people preserve the good and make other people thirsty. But here it is. The way that they do that is by living out the Beatitudes, Right? It's not just that they're, that they're working really hard and trying to entice all these different things. The way that they make other people thirsty is by living in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, following him in everything, and living out the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. This is the whole context of this whole passage. Blessed are the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and all these different kinds of things. By extension, we could also say as we're dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, following him in everything, allowing his Holy Spirit to produce his life inside of us, it is the Holy Spirit producing those things like love and joy and peace so that you and I can become good peacemakers, like he says here in the Beatitudes, right? Uh, patience for when you and I are in mourning, waiting to be comforted. Kindness, goodness, and gentleness, which is synonymous with a meek spirit. Faithfulness and self-control for when you and I are in the fireness of, in, in the fires of persecution. And so um, he does all those things in us that we may become salty people who make other people thirsty, all for the praise and glory of Jesus' name. 
Again, another great example of this in, in Acts chapter 16. I love this chapter. It's a, it's a great portrait of different ways to engage different types of people. Uh, but immediately after Lydia and her whole, house, whole household are saved, the story continues, and evidently there's this demon-possessed fortune-telling girl who's been following Paul and Silas and his traveling buddies around town and really getting on their nerves. Um, it's kind of a funny story, but she's following him around, and she's actually speaking truth. Here's what she says. She goes, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So it's exactly what Paul and his traveling companions are doing, and this demon-possessed slave girl, fortune-telling girl, is following around being like, yep. Like, these men are uh, servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. Now, you think that was a good thing, but when it's coming from a demon-possessed slave girl who's also a fortune teller, it's not building to your credibility to have her affirming the things that you're saying. And so Paul is kind of getting annoyed with this whole thing, and he turns around and he says, uh, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out of that girl. He speaks directly to the demon inside of her, and uh, says, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out of this girl, and immediately it came out of her at that very moment. Now, that sounds like a pretty incredible story, um, that one that you and I would probably celebrate quite a bit, except for the fact that um, that demon-possessed slave girl was very, very valuable to her masters. So without that demon that could also tell the, the fortunes of other people, uh, there went all the profits and there went all the money. And so the girl's masters were really, really ticked off that Pilate, Paul and Silas cast out this demon. They turned them into the authorities and, and threw them in prison immediately. And that's when Paul and his buddies are going to be introduced to this Philippian jailer who I'm simply going to describe as someone who's cold and calloused and essentially very, very numb to the things of God. He's got a beautiful story although his life has been very, very difficult. Essentially, this Philippian jailer is going to be the exact opposite of a Lydia. Lydia was smart, successful, savvy, and spiritually interested. This Philippian jailer is going to be cold and calloused and essentially numb to the things of God. Uh, most jailers at that time, they were retired soldiers, right? And so these are people that spent their entire life and their entire youth um, dealing with horrors and violence and uh, just, just one abusive situation after another. They've seen death and they've seen pain like no one else has, has seen those kinds of things. And so that's kind of who the, who the, the jailer actually is. Uh, today it might be anyone who has known horror in such a way that could likely leave the numb and shut off to other people and also to the things of God. And evidently that's quite a few people today. I was doing some reading this past week, and one article was just talking about the hundreds of our soldiers who are coming home today and that are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, they're not being able to integrate back into the world today. Another article I was reading was talking about how about 25% of all of our little girls and 10% of little boys will be sexually assaulted by the time that they turn 18 years old. Each year, there's nearly about 3 million cases of child abuse that are reported to the authorities and of those who experience abuse, about 59% are more likely to be arrested as a juvenile. 28% are more likely to be arrested as an adult. And about 30% are more likely to commit violent crime in the future. About 30% of all women and 8% of all men will report being a victim of domestic violence. And we know that those are just the people who are willing to report it. And we know that those numbers go above and beyond that number all the time. Nearly one in five women, 18.3%. And one in 71 men, one and a half percent, have been raped in their lifetime. 81% of those victims have reported significant long-term impacts such as PTSD and other long-lasting injuries to their body. 
And granted, like, we don't know exactly if the jailer's actually been victimized in any way or another, but his history of brutality and his history of violence in his life has left him in the same place to this point where he's cold and he's calloused and he's completely numb to the things of God. And so you got two very, very different people here. And anyone else kind of looking at Lydia's story being like, yeah, that's not my story. Like, I was never spiritually interested. I didn't grow up in this safe environment. But this jailer, like, I, like I get this jailer. Like, the things that happened in my past, like, that was my past. I know brutality. I know horrific violence. I know what these things do. And I know the long-term lasting impact of these things. And in the middle of that place, God broke into my life. And he gave me hope. And he gave me grace. And he gave me healing. Like, that's the jailer's story. And it's a completely different type of person. I want you to see what salty looks like to the jailer, okay? Verse 22 says that the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. They're thrown in prison. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Church, does that sound like a familiar beatitude to anybody? I mean, verse 10, Jesus just said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. All he's doing is living out the beatitudes and dependence upon the Father. Like he's living those things out. He's doing what Jesus is gonna do still one day in the future, Right? I mean, it kind of reminds me of Richard Wormbrand's story, easily one of my favorite heroes in the faith, uh, author of Tortured for Christ. He was an old Romanian pastor who famously spent about 14 years in, in communist prisons being tortured every single day for his faith, trying to be forced into to recant of his faith and things like that. He would get out of there safely and end up starting Voice of the Martyrs. But here's what he wrote about, and here's what he said in his book, Tortured for Christ. He said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, and so everyone was happy. Like, it, none of that attitude makes sense, right, church? But like, that's what salty people do. Like, they keep following Jesus. They keep depending upon the Holy, Holy Spirit. Like, no matter the darkness around them, they keep pressing in, and they let their light shine. They let their saltiness be salty so that other people can be thirsty. I mean, can you imagine being the jailer in that moment and seeing what he's seeing? I mean, here's Paul and Silas. They've just been beaten with rods mercilessly. They've been flogged, severely flogged, which is the language that was used with Jesus when he was severely flogged and went to the cross. And now they're put in these, in these locks and these chains and their arms are hanging and their neck is uncomfortable and they're sitting there around midnight and they're singing praises unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, can you imagine being that jailer? Like, do you think you might get thirsty at that time? I mean, do you think that you might sit there and kind of go, well, like, what in the world do these guys have that I don't have? That in the middle of all this darkness, in the middle of all their pain, in the middle of all their suffering, they're able to somehow praise their Savior. Like, what, that's not in me. Like, those aren't the things that I've experienced. I, I know numbness. I know pain. Like, I know retreat and all of these different kinds of things. But these guys, they know the Lord their God in such a way that it's causing them to sing in the middle of their pain. Like, do you think that might make someone pay attention? Like, do you think it might catch someone's attention if in the middle of your pain, in the middle of whatever that thing is that you're going through right now, you may see the purposes of God in the middle of that thing and somehow be able to honor him and give him praise in the middle of that? 
I mean, the story just keeps going. Like the jailer's paying attention. The other prisoners are paying attention. They're singing praises to God. And here's what happens next. It says, suddenly there's a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Right? All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Basically, it's a jailbreak. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself because we're all here. Church, why in the world is Paul and Silas? Like, why do they stick behind? I mean, the doors have been flung open. I mean, clearly the Lord has done this miraculous thing and people are set free. And Paul and Silas are still sitting there and they're waiting. Why in the world would they do that? It's just mercy, right? It's mercy. It's blessed and the merciful for they will show they will be shown mercy. It's following Jesus and understanding that there's, there's a way to engage that's different. There's a way to engage generically. But some people who've been hardened by years of horrific violence need to see and experience mercy, kind of like sticking around when everyone else is going to take, take off before they can actually believe in mercy. Church, like, some people who've been hardened by things that have happened to them in the past, like they need to experience the compassion of the body of Christ before they can believe that that there's a God in heaven who has compassion to them. Like some people need to experience mercy more than they're told about mercy. I mean, I'll never forget, I've told you guys a lot about my friend Don in the past, and I've never told you about how he actually came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love his testimony story, but Don was the guy, I met him in his mid-50s at a party about 10 years ago now. And uh, back in his 20s and late 30s, he was the most popular gay male prostitute in all of Dallas. And I met him at this party, and he hadn't been in the church in about 25 years. The last time he went, uh, he was told in the parking lot by someone there that he deserved to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell, which is never good, right? 25 years, he's never walking back in there. He was there with his partner that day trying to be a Lydia and trying to understand the things of God, and he was told that he deserved to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell. 25 years, he stayed away from the church, and his story started about 12 years ago, um, he was living in the Oaklawn area, and, and that's who he was and stuff. And it was a time when Fellowship Church in downtown Dallas started building their new facilities downtown. And they built this new location down there pretty much in his neighborhood. And he, called, he affectionately called it the Gaberhood. That was kind of his place and his domain and stuff. And he was just ticked off. He saw that a church was moving in the area. And he's like, how dare they move into my neighborhood? Who do you think that you are? So he was getting furious this entire time. Finally, the church gets up there. The pastors are on staff, and he writes them a letter one day, and is like, who do you think you are moving into my neighborhood? Like, where were you in the 80s? Where were you in the 90s when we were looking out for all these different kinds of things, and we needed answers? And like, who do you think you are? And so finally, one of the pastors reached back out to him, and he's like, hey, um, I'm so-and-so. I'm glad you reached out to us. He's like, I find you to be a very judgmental person. He's like, you don't even know me or any of the things that we do around here. He's like, I'd love to take you to coffee so you can actually know me a little bit better and know if I'm worthy of your judgment. And of course, Don's sitting there thinking about it. He's going, you're right, I was kind of judgmental. He's like, I should probably understand a little bit better of what I'm judging and that kind of a thing. And so they go to coffee that day and Don's telling him his story and this guy's telling him his story and they're kind of getting to know each other and things like that. And basically the pastor is like, Don, like you're really, really angry at the church and you're really angry at God and all these different kinds of things. Why don't you come and see what it is that we're actually about? And that way you'll be able to know uh, a little bit more pointed what you should be uh, angry about today. And so the guy, so Don thought about it and was like, okay, I'll, I'll play your game. I'm not gonna go to your church. I'm not gonna walk in those doors, but I'll go to that off-campus men's Bible study and stuff and I'll, I'll ask some questions and I'll, basically he was wanting to kind of prove himself a little bit more. 
And so he goes to this off-campus men's Bible study and meets a group of men, and that's where he meets my friend Chris. Chris and he develop a friendship. They start engaging together regularly and getting together, and, and Don keeps asking all of his really, really tough questions, and he starts uh, just pounding them with all different kinds of things, and he was angry, right? Uh, rightfully so. Rightfully so. Horrific things have happened in his past, and uh, we did them to him. And so uh, he was very, very angry, and Chris hung in there the whole time. And it took months and months and months of engagement and conversations. Finally, Chris introduced him to another friend of mine named Britt. Britt started doing the same thing, inviting him into community and becoming friends with this guy. Britt introduced him to me, and I started doing the exact same thing. And all of a sudden, he's got this community of Christians around him who love him and are hanging out with him and going to coffee and spending time with him and all these different kinds of things. We introduced him to all these different seminary professors there. He's asking a lot of these tough questions, and we just start doing life with him in church. What I'm trying to tell you is that it took a couple years before he could even begin to understand the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like it took years before he could understand some of the things that we've been talking about. I mean, probably about a year and a half, two years into this whole thing, he, one of my buddies, Chris, he finally asked me, he says, Don, where are you on this whole Christian thing? Where are you on Jesus? And he broke down and he's like, he just admitted, he's like, I can't accept the fact that I'm a sinner. I can't do that my entire life. He's like, I've been yelled at and screamed that I'm a sinner before God and I don't deserve this, that, and the other. And so he's like, I've got a hard time believing that. He's like, I know that it's true, but you can't call me a sinner. And like, those are the kinds of things that he held on to, and rightfully so, church. And I want you to give, see the snapshot of things that need to take place, right? You need to experience the mercy of God before you can, more than you're being told about it, right? And he's like, I can't understand these things. And so Chris pushed him again and he goes, hey, so, so where are you again? Coming back, I, I, I know that you, you're, you're agreeing to some of these things. And he just breaks down and he goes, he goes, how in the world can a God like that love someone like me? How in the world can a God like that love someone like me? You know the things that I've done. Like how in the world can a God like that love someone like me? And church, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes like people need to be shown mercy more than they're told about it. And sometimes people need to, to experience your compassion, the compassion of the body of Christ, to believe that there's compassion of a God in heaven who loves them. And sometimes people, they need your time more than they need your advice, right? And sometimes they need, they, they, they need your hugs more than they need your answers. And sometimes they need your love more than they need the wristband in any given moment. And sometimes it's going to take not just a day like it did with Paul and Silas and this jailer, but sometimes it's going to take years of being in there and saying, you know what, I know that everyone else has run away, I'm not going anywhere. And sometimes they need to experience the mercy of God before they can actually begin to believe in it, church. It's exactly what we're seeing here with Paul and Silas and this Philippian jailer church. It's what salty people do. They keep following Jesus and they keep living out the fruit of the Holy Spirit every single day. They keep giving mercy when it makes no sense to give mercy. They keep pursuing peace when it's easier to walk away from a situation. They keep showing compassion when it's quicker to give advice. And you know what happens when salty people do those things? People get thirsty. There's a God who loves me. Why would you stay here? You're free. The gates are open. Like everyone's running. Why in the world are you here right now? So you need to know the mercy that I'm telling you about. God makes people thirsty, church. 
The jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. It says, it says that he brought them out and he asked them, sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? <laughs> they layups, right? I mean, it's like the Holy Spirit does things when we're sleeping, right? Like, what must I do to be saved? And, and like, it's the most simple gospel presentation in the world. He just simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Man. Church, here it is. When you're living in a world that is surrounded by darkness, all it takes is the tiniest bit of light to light up a room. It's all it takes. And so Jesus, when he's beginning his ministry, he takes this group of people who've forgotten who they really are, and, he's, and he reminds them of who they really are, and he says, you're not defined by the things in your past. You're not defined by the labels that people have said about you. You're not defined by your successes or your failures or any of those different kinds of things. You're defined by me, and you are exactly who I chose to go and be the salt of this earth and the light of this world. So church, may we be everything that God has already created us to be, the salt of the earth and the light of this world.